This is exactly right. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. This podcast is brought to you by Parent Footprint and Parent Footprint Awareness Training. Our goal, mission, and passion at Parent Footprint is to create a more loving world with more compassionate people, one parent and one child at a time. We believe that parents can raise happy, healthy, and engaged kids by being happy, healthy, engaged, and aware themselves. By being aware of our own lives and our purpose, we can parent with purpose and intention and leave the legacy we want for our children and grandchildren. Today, we have a great show called Rethinking Challenging Behavior and What to Do About It. And I'm excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Mona Delahook, who is a pediatric psychologist and mother of three. Her passion is translating the latest neuroscience research into hope and help for parents of children with emotional, developmental, and behavioral challenges. Dr. Mona is in the process of writing two books and has a great blog called The Visible Parent. Dr. Mona, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm thrilled to be here. So I would like to start with this blog that you wrote um, in the end of September, which went viral. And the reason that, I mean, we'll talk about why it hit a nerve, but what I loved about it is as someone who, like you, has worked with kids and families for a long time, people talk about this oppositional defiant disorder as, as a label, as a thing, and all it does is usually describe behavior, but doesn't explain it. And you took this mm-hmm. thing on, and you definitely hit a nerve. So can you tell the listeners what led you to write this piece? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on, and also for uh, acknowledging this piece, because it's funny, I wrote this one, you know, I've been writing blog posts for several years now, and I wrote this one in less than an hour. I wrote it really quickly after I had come back from a meeting with a a child and, and family where this child had been given the label of oppositional defiant disorder, and the professionals around the table were talking about it as if it was a a thing, right? As if it was mm-hmm. something in the brain that is a causes oppositional defiant disorder. And it was based, it's based on this labeling system where, like you said, it's a description of behaviors, but it is not something like a disease like diabetes or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. a DSM label that has been given to kids uh, whom we don't understand and who don't go with the flow and who happen to be the, you know, the, the more trickier kids to deal with in school and for parents too with, with, these, um, with these behaviors. So I think it, it came about because a lot of the treatment programs and goals that I see for kids with this label are ineffective. Mm-hmm. And Perhaps one of the reasons this blog post went viral is that parents and professionals resonated with the fact that it's very difficult to treat, and it's something that, so far, our traditional treatment protocols have fallen short. Yeah, and, you know, to be fair to 
to the situation, we're not saying that these kids aren't difficult. And a lot of us experience difficult kids and have difficult kids. And if you're listening to this show, you might have a difficult child. So we're not saying the difficult behavior doesn't exist. You're talking about a different explanation and understanding of the behavior, which could hopefully lead to some successful intervention and outcome. Yes, yes. And greater compassion and greater empathy because I believe we've been barking up the wrong tree for helping children with this type of dis- with with these types of issues and absolutely there is a lot of pain out there and again mm-hmm. I think that's why this blog, blog post resonated is that it's very stressful and difficult for parents to try everything and come up short with helping their children Let's talk a little bit about those trees, because I think that's a really good way of, of looking at this. What What's the traditional tree? Because again, as a parent, they've probably tried this tree. Like what, what traditionally do professionals yeah. think and suggest about this difficult behavior? Okay, so many treatment plans are based on the, on the premise that the child is having these behaviors intentionally. Mm-hmm. So it's based on the premise that the child is purposefully misbehaving, being defiant, or otherwise having challenging behaviors. And again, traditionally, it's thought that the reason the child might be doing some something like this would be to get attention or to avoid something mm-hmm. or to get negative attention. So first of all, that's the premise that most of our our supports are built on. So what would those traditional supports be? Those would be things like trying to just reinforce positive behaviors or punishing the child, punishing in one way or another, even like timeouts or ignoring or, mm-hmm. you know, ignoring non-preferred behaviors. We would, so that would be another, that would be a model. So we try to teach a child in that way. Mm-hmm. Another way would be to have, you know, to have good behavior charts and help a child see how their behaviors are inappropriate and not right and give them rewards for having positive behaviors. Those, that's, uh, can you think of any others that I'm missing? Well, Those no, I'm thinking, kind of I'm thinking you, you, you really covered it and, and just to package it up, really it's all the, what we call behaviorism, right? We're, we're sort well, of, basically, we're, yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> I try not to say that word very often because I don't want to offend behavioral therapists because I think they're right. great, but yes, it's based on the behaviors that we can see. And again, this can work for some kids, but for the very difficult and complex, what we find, and I'm sure you parents find the same thing if you're dealing with this, like something might work very short term, but it always stops working. It doesn't have the long-term effects or the generalizability, and in some ways makes an oppositional kid more angry. That's right. So what's this other tree? Where, what tree are we moving towards to bark up? Yeah, so here we're, we're moving towards another tree, and that's, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. When you use the traditional supports for challenging behaviors and they work, which they often do, you're fine. But children who have been given psychiatric labels, such as this one, are the, exactly what you just said. Those are children for whom traditional methods simply don't work or they're not generalizable, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here is the, here's a, a, a different way of looking at things. One, I think for me, the biggest 
support for thinking about children in a new way has come from neuroscience and the whole idea of something we call a stress response. And I describe something called neuroception in this article. I'm a big fan of Dr. Stephen Porges. He is a neuroscientist that does, he, he does a lot of work with something called the polyvagal theory, which is a very complex theory. But the takeaway that I have, have uh, found very useful clinically is the whole idea that as human beings, if we are not feeling safe in our subconscious, in our body and mind, then we are not in full control of our behaviors. And so the tree that we need to be barking up, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is that we need to be looking at something called physiological state or emotional regulation as the foundation of challenging behaviors, which turns, ch- shifts the lens from viewing it as an intentional behavior to a stress response. Uh. When a child is in a stress response, they are having, they most likely don't know it, right? This is, mm-hmm. if, if it's faulty neuroception, it's subconscious, meaning that the fight or flight response, something in the child's subconscious awareness is triggering the need to move, the need to strike out, the need to get away, the need to whatever. And they come out, it comes, it looks like challenging behaviors and oppositional defiance. So what happens when you ignore an individual who's in a stress response and whose body and mind are feeling unsafe? (laughs) The behaviors get worse. Yep. Right? And that's why the tree we need to be looking at above and beyond anything else, in my opinion, is called emotional regulation. And it starts with something called emotional co-regulation, which means that a loving caregiver, a trusted adult, an other person needs to come alongside the child and help calm down their central nervous system before we start talking to the kids, lecturing them, giving them star charts, etc. We need to go to the foundation of mental health, which is emotional regulation. So co-regulation, this, that's the is that did you come up with that? Because that's brilliant. I, I haven't heard of no, co-regulation no. before. Oh, okay, good. No, I didn't come up with it. That's a, t- a term that. Well, I don't know who actually originated it, but my mentors in mental health, Dr. Stanley Greenspan and Dr. Serena Weeder, have been talking about it for many years, and co-regulation is how human beings regulate. So infants cannot regulate their own anything of their of their own they can regulate their breathing but they need to have people attend to their hunger needs and their needs to stay warm and their needs to be held and their emotional needs and so adults co-regulate we come alongside a little infant and so co-regulation implies that we we're not asking the child to feel okay on their own we are lending a compassionate ear and saying we're we're here with, I'm here with you, and I, I, I see that you're struggling, and let's see what we can do together to help you feel better. What I love about the idea of co-regulation and um, maybe even stretching it a little bit more is yep. when, you know, we talk about parent footprint and to, for us to intentionally be, to be aware of how we 
are acting how we are feeling so we can choose how to be in our parenting moment and and choose that in yeah. line with our what we want in the outcome for our kids character or for them to learn a lesson to teach them the, the one of the premises is yeah. that we have to manage our own emotion and energy especially in these stressful parenting situations so what i love about what you're saying with co-regulation it is essential that the parent has to self-regulate in order to co-regulate to help their intense and overstimulated or overstressed out child calm down. That's exactly it, Dan. That's it. Right there. Beautifully said. And hard to do, right? Yes, it's hard to do. And again, what I what I love about the parent footprint visualization is that what it involves is awareness. Mm-hmm. Of, of a caregiver, and this could be the parent, but it could also be a teacher or a therapist, right? It could be an, a classroom aide, an awareness of our own state, of our own, mm-hmm. Stephen Porges would call it physiological state, but let's just think of it as our ability to be calm in mind and body mm-hmm. as caregivers is foundational because if we are, then we can problem solve for our mm-hmm. child and we can be that we can be present for them. And if we are in a stress response ourselves, if we are feeling like uh you know kind of how sometimes you feel like you're you've got a stuck gas pedal, you're a car and you your gas mm-hmm. pedal is on high and you can't slow down. That's mm-hmm. how our kids feel. So when we think about co-regulation, it really necessitates the caregiver being aware of staying calm and understanding that if we are also revving up with the child, we're not going to be able to help them downshift. Mm-hmm. And so the first tree, when we're doing classic behaviorism, which again mm-hmm. has a lot of merits, but um, some t- often falls short with a lot of these kids, um, yep. that first tree is we're going to focus on the child's behavior. We're going to ignore them, maybe because we don't want to reinforce a negative behavior. But as you pointed out, you know, if they're stressed out, that's only going to increase their stress and um, oppositional looking behavior. So that first tree starts with the child's behavior. And this approach, this tree is, hey, it starts with us as the parent or caregiver's behavior in terms of Mm. regulating to help the child feel safe and secure so we actually can sort of join them and help them co-regulate. Yes. And and it's such a huge gift that that has come out of neuroscience to me, this Mm -hmm. idea that human beings co-regulate and feel safe with the help of another. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we are asking kids, especially our more vulnerable kids, and those would be kids who have psychiatric disorders such as this one, which I, again, I think is is a, a kind of a bogus disorder and it's, it's going to be gone in the next version of whatever, mm-hmm. if, if the DSM even survives. But right. our vulnerable kids need relational support in spades. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, what they get most of is the traditional types of treatment because we try to give them, we try to, you know, throw the book at at this, so to speak, with with traditional treatments. And if those treatments involve shaming and isolating a child, uh, having them have, uh, feel that if only they tried harder, they they could do better or be better. It's mm-hmm. giving them a false, 
premise to work off of because these kids are not going to relate to the fact that they intentionally did something because they didn't. It was a stress response. So, so another... Yeah, keep going. I was going to say, what do we, so what, what do parents do from then, right? We, we co-regulate, and then, and then what? Well, co-regulation, it's, and I, I guess I should also say that one of the keys to the type of work I do is to understand that individual differences lead the way. And what I mean by individual differences is that each and every child and parent and caregiver is going to have our own unique way of being in the world, of taking in information, of calming down in mind and spirit. And a lot of the treatment approaches that are out there are one size fits all. So the first thing we want to do when we try to figure out how to co-regulate with a child and how to help them is to figure out what are those things that, A, that triggered the child or led to the meltdown or, or the behaviors and try to figure out how we can offer support so that we actually have a, a model that's looking more at prevention than just putting out fires. So one of the things I, I think is essential for kids like this is to understand and discover each child's vulnerabilities, individual differences. When I say that, I mean those things that impact the way a child takes in the world, emotional information and and information through all their senses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, let's see, in one of my blog posts, I talk about some of the, the things that can contribute to some difficulties in ch- children taking in this information and going with the flow and being able to make transitions as adults require them. And those would be things like genetic constitutional factors, how their brain is wired. For example, in autism, um, mm-hmm. there's a, a profound, dif- as you know, profound difference in how a child's brain is wired. And it can also sensory processing challenges. Children who process information through sounds or vision or touch or smell differently, all of these things can profoundly impact a child's level of stress recovery and so behavioral management techniques for those kids who are having these responses to other things are going to be ineffective. Right. So what what we're talking you're talking about is understanding what is going on within and around the child to trigger this difficult behavior. So, for example, we know that the stress response or the fight-and-flight response related to anxiety or post-traumatic stress, that can precipitate very difficult behavior. And the other thing that you said that made me think about this on a recent show, uh, we had Dr. Stuart Hanker, who just wrote this book called Self-Reg, about self-regulation, and totally crosses over with what you're saying is a a bright light or a loud sound alone can trigger a behavioral meltdown just alone. So it's just, it's more what I love about this approach and this new way of thinking is we're looking at ourselves as parents, teachers, caregivers, professionals, and we're looking at what are the triggers in the environment instead of just going straight to the kid and say, this is your fault. You're trying to do this and you need to cut it out. Yes, precisely. It's a, just a much more holistic way of looking at human behavior. And because what you just said about going straight to the kid and saying, you know, why did you do that? Or, you know, that's against the rules and here's your, here's what's going to happen now that you broke the rules again. 
we're looking at those things that come way, way before what is known as executive function or executive control. Mm -hmm. And when a child is able to talk about why they did something and what was going on in in their mind and body at that time and, and, you know, explain it to the adult, when a child is able to do that, then those types of of more traditional um, cognitive behavioral therapies can work very well. But the vast majority of the children that I work with, at least, don't have that capability. Mm-hmm. And so there, again, is the reason why talk therapies and behavior charts and timeout rooms and even positive reinforcement, because then we're, we're giving the child the message that we're only going to pay attention to them when they are com- being compliant. All of those things don't resonate with where we need to look, and that is at even, I would say, even the precursor to self-regulation, which is what Stuart Shanker talks about, is mm-hmm. emotional co-regulation, because we, we, we learn to regulate our emotions with the help of an, a loving other. And right. even in attachment theory, there's not a lot of differentiation on how do you tailor that support to each and every child? What's going to mm-hmm. work well? For some kids, verbal reinforcement works well, but for others, it doesn't work at all. Mm-hmm. So in um, in one of the paradigms that I that I work with is known as DIR floor time, mm-hmm. and it's a uh, have you heard of it? I have yes. Tell 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 everyone about it. Yeah, well, DIR is a treatment philosophy slash paradigm where we look at a wide variety of things under the umbrella of developmental milestones, individual differences, and all of these are taking place through relationships. So that's the D, the I, and the R. And floor time therapy is one technique that's subsumed under the DIR umbrella, but floor time therapy is just a wonderful way of helping children move up the developmental milestones and develop socially and emotionally. And it's built on the foundation of emotional regulation at the start. So before we try to assist a child in learning anything, we make sure that they are calm in their body and mind and that they are feeling safe and that they have that neuroception, as Dr. Porges says, of safety. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's how we build the work. Awesome. Hey, so in summarizing, you said a lot of great stuff. I love the idea of co-regulation, understanding a child's individual differences, the triggers that create, promote... Yep precipitate the difficult behavior. What is, if there was one thing, what is one thing that you would recommend as a takeaway for parents listening to this show? If they could do one thing or think about one thing, what's most important in your perspective? I'd say the one thing, the one guiding principle to put out front before anything else is provide safety in relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think as a parent that might Sometimes when we when the throes of a child doing something that is defiant or oppositional and really stresses us out, we feel like we have to immediately teach them or punish them or let them know that it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And for very vulnerable children, I really think that if we can remember, let's first, let's think about how can I help the child feel safe in this moment? And that probably starts with, how can I 
make myself feel calm and safe in this moment so I can offer right. my presence right. and my lack yes. of judgment to the child and let the child know that together we can figure this out. Yes, perfect. Okay, it's now the time for the show where you get to answer the parent footprint moment question where mm-hmm. you tell the listeners about a time when you became aware as a parent or as an individual and that awareness had a positive impact on your child or children. I love that question. It's a great one. And I actually re- I remember one moment and it was, I was a parent, I think at that point I had two children, and one of my children was really struggling, and I was an attachment-trained child psychologist, you know, I had excellent training, and you would think that I would have the answers, but I felt like I completely didn't. So mm-hmm. I was in this training, and it was the first time I heard the idea that what we consider a mental health issue or a concerning challenge for children could actually be them feeling that they are in a stress response. Mm-hmm. And I realized that one of, my chi- one of my children was in a stress response, and I was partly responsible because I was believing that their behavior, her behavior was intentional when it was mm-hmm. actually unintentional. And I know I shed a few tears and I thought, wow, this is, this is a watershed moment. And um, it changed the way it changed my, the way I practice. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had a lot of great training in, you know, for, as a child psychologist, but I went back and that's when I, I began uh, mentoring with uh, Serena Weeder and um, flew back to Washington, D.C. a couple weeks every year for a decade and, and, found a new way of looking at how we can help and support children. So that was my watershed moment when it was, I realized it was going to be able to help my own child and it helped her so much. That is a great parent footprint moment, that awareness that everything is not volitional and that, and that it could be something in that, those tiny brains, those scared brains and those emotional brains and they're reacting in ways because they feel unsafe. That's wonderful. Well, this, uh, Dr. Mona, this was so fun. Thank you for sharing with everyone our show, Rethinking Challenging Behavior and What to Do About It. Now, Dr. Mona Delahook has some good stuff for you guys all to follow up on. Where can they find more about your work? Oh, thank you, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I have uh, my blog is uh, thevisiblepairent.com, and they can find me, Mona Delahook, on Facebook, Mona Delahook, PhD, on Facebook as well and uh, monadelahook.com, uh, my website. And we're going to look for those two cool books, and then we're gonna, you're going to come back on the show, and we're going to talk about them. How about that? Oh, thank you. I'm looking All forward right. to it. My first one is going to be coming out in March, so thank you so much. I'd love to. All right, then we'll be talking soon. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us on the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. Go to parentfootprint.com, www.parentfootprint.com. And all of you who are striving to be the best people and parents you can be, think about this daily guiding question. What footprint do you want to leave?